Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Golden Age Premier. High-quality, vintage-style products at an affordable price point. To find out more, go to goldenagepremier.com. This episode is also brought to you by Fuse Audio Labs. Uncompromising emulations of classic and rare studio processors in revolutionary plug-in form. For more info, go to fuseaudiolabs.de. And now your host, Al Levy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. I have a great guest today. The dude is a fucking titan. This is a great episode and so inspiring. My guest is Tim Palmer, who's a Grammy-nominated producer, songwriter, mixer, engineer, who has four decades under his belt, starting his career in London in the early 80s, usually grabbing tea for artists and engineers like uh, people like David Bowie, for instance, and making his way to working on his first number one single at the age of 21. And since then, he's worked on records you may have heard of, like 10 by Pearl Jam. He's worked with bands you may have heard of, like U2, uh, Robert Plant, Ozzy Osbourne, Tears for Fears, and on and on and on. The guy is incredible. And I love his perspective on what your priorities should be as a producer. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the Tim Palmer episode of the URM podcast. Here goes. Tim Palmer, thank you so much for coming on the URM podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. My pleasure. So I'm just going to get right into it. Four decades into this, uh, <laughs> is this what you had imagined for yourself and do you still love it the way you always did? I, I definitely still love it. Um, I didn't imagine four decades. That sounds pretty scary to me, I must be honest. It's pretty amazing. You know, it's funny because I was thinking about it this morning because I knew that we were going to have a chat and uh, when I first walked into a studio and began my journey, the engineer um, told me that he'd worked in the 60s with Dave Clark 5, and of course I was immediately impressed. But I was immediately also shocked at how old this guy obviously was. And when I think about it now, back to then, it was only, I mean, the Dave Clark 5 of probably about 1965, I mean, the Beatles' revolver was 65, so... This, this sort of period seemed so such a long way away from where my career was beginning, but yet it was only probably 15 years, something like that, from where I was beginning. And now when people look at me, I often wonder what the hell they think about, seeing as it's more like 35, 40 years or whatever. <laughs> it's quite, quite strange. It's interesting. I wonder similar sorts of things, because I, uh, I guess I was a teenager in the 90s, and I remember, you know, uh, thinking like I'd love Led Zeppelin, those bands, and from the seventies, and was thinking to myself, "This is old music." Yeah. Uh, but now I think back to the nineties, and I just wonder if if people in their teens now look to the nineties the same way that I looked to the seventies, as in that was a really 
long time ago because it really wasn't that long ago. I know. I, I think you're probably right. They probably do. I remember in the 80s thinking I would love to buy a vintage guitar, um, but couldn't actually afford it. So I bought a, a brand new one. In fact, I actually got it as sort of a discount rate because it was actually when I was working with Tin Machine with David Bowie. So I got it through his deal. But I remember thinking, I wish I had the money to have a vintage guitar. And uh, of course, now it is. <laughs> yeah. So you did buy a vintage guitar. <laughs> So was it mind-blowing being that age and working with people of that stature? Yes, it definitely was. Um, I was very fortunate enough to start, you know, in the way that it was done in those days, which was as an apprentice. Um, I got my break in a recording studio making cups of tea at probably age 19. So, you know, it was the old way to 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 learn and uh you know i i can't deny that uh i was very fortunate to be able to get a job in a studio where there were so many great people coming through and that was the way you learned you learned by the things they did right but you also learned by the things that they did wrong you know one of the things that i find to be interesting is that one of the main things that i guess has in my studio career made me not hire an intern has been their, I guess, their inability to chill in the presence of a great artist. And obviously you could chill if, you know, if you started that young and then you stayed in the game, uh, then that means that you obviously knew how to behave around them. But I think that that's actually a lot more difficult than it seems to people on the outside or people who are wanting to get into it, how to behave right. So... Is that something that you had to be taught or did you just kind of understand it? How did how was that whole part uh, expressed from your mentor or the bosses? Well, if I'm honest, I don't think you could be further from the truth as far as me being able... Please be honest. ...to, uh, to know studio etiquette. It was most definitely something that had to be learned. I remember one of the first days that I was in a studio that the engineer on the session had a clever system where he would mark the front on the tape machine if he wanted to clean something up perfectly he would mark the front of let's say for example tom toms with a white china graph mark on the two inch tape and he would mark the end of the tom fill with a white china graph mark and he would at the end of the song he would be able to go through and spot arrays neatly between the china graph marks so he had a perfectly clean track that had toms on it of course this is nothing now of course with pro tools and and files the way that we clean things but in those days this was a pretty impressive trick and uh he did this in front of me and uh Sadly, he erased between the wrong white marks. So what he'd actually done was he neatly erased all the toms perfectly and left all the spill of the cymbals and hi-hats perfectly. So Uh the session went completely silent because they knew that this has been a horrific error. Um, but Muggins here, as we say in England, uh, spoke up. Oh, it's okay, Johnny. You can just get him to go out and play. And I started to, you know voiced my opinion, and I was immediately told to just get out of the studio. And I very nearly lost my job two days in because you basically, you've got to keep your mouth shut, you know? What's interesting, too, is that it's not like you were being a weirdo to the artists or anything like that. You were just trying to help. I, I was, and, and that enthusiasm um, was definitely part of the um, why I enjoyed 
you know, being an assistant and the early part of my career, I, I really did love what I, I, I had as my job. I, I loved it. I didn't want to go home. Uh, I remember when I got my one of my first breaks later on, on a proper session as an assistant, I was working for a, a fantastic engineer who's still working to this day, Neil Dorfsman. And we were working on the soundtrack um, to a movie called Local Hero with uh, Mark Knopfler. And, uh, you know, these were long sessions and I was the tape op and they were used to working in America. But every time Mark would play a selection of guitar solos and things, I would chirp in with what I thought was the best pieces. And uh, it was purely, you know, honest, enthusiastic, innocent stuff, but not required on the session. And I can remember Mark and Neil taking me aside and saying, we love the fact that you're so into it, but you're going to have to just not contribute so much to the session. And I went you know, completely bright red and was very embarrassed and kept my mouth shut from that point onwards, but still loved the session. And it was funny because they were really nice to me and they would often, you know, have a conversation and then they would turn to me running the machine and say, well, which one was your favourite, Tim? So they were really cool about it and uh, it was a great session and I, I loved, you know, the opportunity to learn from someone like Neil. So that's that's actually kind of interesting to me. So you got somewhat reprimanded for speaking up too much but then it seems like it also kind of worked in your favor because then they did ask your opinion afterwards yeah but i think they were probably just doing it because they were kind people oh, okay i don't know how i don't know how much they took it <laughs> how much they you know they listened to it but uh, it was very nice all the same at what point did you notice that uh, people started to actually in your opinion in a serious way start to request your opinion what was the transition from this kid's enthusiastic and but please shut up to uh we we actually want you to give us your thoughts on this well i think the thing that you first notice is when people request you to be the assistant on the session um i think being an assistant is an incredible opportunity because as i said before not only do you learn um, the good stuff you also can see when a producer handles things very badly they're putting a lot of trust in you being an assistant, especially in those days, because you had to run the tape machine. And being an assistant engineer was quite a, a scary, uh, a scary situation to be put in. You know, the idea of a band playing a live take, and you've made the decision when the producer turns around and says, "We want to do one more take. Do we have enough tape left on the reel?" And you look at the reel and think, yes, yes, I think there's enough. And it's purely done by eyesight. And you see the band and they're still cut in the last choruses and that tape is getting closer and closer to spinning off. I mean, things like that and, and dropping in when, a, when the producer turns to you and says, I need to fix one word and it's on the third bar and it's this word and it's right before the chorus. I need you to get in and get out. Um, you know, your heart starts racing when you operate that tape machine and you punch in and you punch out and you, it's a skill that has obviously been lost now, but to be somebody who's really good at dropping in, as we call it in England, uh, was a real bonus. And, you know, when a producer feels like, you know, this kid gets it, he, I say it, he knows what I want to do. He listens to the conversations in the room. If you hear the producer talking about maybe adding some piano chords to, to the bridge section, you don't wait around, you get out into the room and, and when they start to make that a definite decision, you've already got the piano mic'd up. You know, when you're, when you're that sort of assistant, people want you to be around. And just to clarify for people listening who might not understand that we're talking right now about the transition from runner into actual assistant. That's correct. 
That's correct. So it's kind of an exercise in knowing when to speak up, knowing when not to speak up, having the technical skills to not screw the whole thing up, but also being able to understand what their needs are ahead of them actually needing those things so that you can prepare them for them. Correct. Absolutely. And then the, ste- the next stage, of course, is to be able to be given the opportunity to be put in control when you become the engineer. Um, that's a big step, too. And in the hierarchy of the studio system back then, it required one of a few different avenues. One would be that somebody left and there was the, you know, the, the space for you to be able to rise up and become an engineer. Or maybe, in my case... There was an opportunity where somebody, um, his, his kitchen got flooded, for instance. There was a session booked into our, our demo room, which was called Studio 2. And uh, Sting was actually recording the demos for the, I think it was the Synchronicity album. And he was working with an engineer from our studio. And one day, this particular engineer rang in and said, look, my kitchen's flooded, I'm not going to make it. And the studio lady who ran our studio, Annie, said to me, do you think that you could handle Studio 2 because Pete can't make it in. And I said, I think I can. I'll, I'll do that. So, you know, one minute you're assisting and the next minute you're engineering with Sting. And uh, that's pretty freaky as well. I can imagine that that must have been a trip mentally. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, you want to impress him. You want to do all the right things, but your nerves are in the way as well. And uh, I can remember at one point as we were doing the vocals on this particular demo, it was a song called Tea in the Sahara. And uh, I was trying to get the reverb to come through these particular tie lines into that studio and it was quite a challenge to remember how to patch it and uh, I got a little bit of feedback in Sting's headphones and he wasn't he wasn't too happy about it but uh, but yeah we made it through so this elapsed time from when you first got your first runner gig all the way to where you are now in charge of the session with this immense artist like Sting how how long was that well I was very fortunate it was probably only two or three years um Another thing, uh, this is an interesting story for you, you know, sometimes these opportunities come up in the most bizarre ways. Yes, they sure do. (laughs) One of the opportunities that suddenly appeared for me was that I was the assistant engineer on an 80s band, a very 80s band called Kajagoogoo, and uh, the producer was Colin Thurston, and uh, he was also engineering the record, and the co-producer was Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran. And I was the assistant, and uh, I used to work for Colin a lot, and uh, sadly Colin's no longer with us. Um, I think he died about five years ago, but Colin had worked as an engineer on Heroes and countless other great 80s albums like Talk Talk and uh, Howard Jones and Classics Nouveau. So he was a great producer to be an assistant for. Anyway, when we were doing the Kajagoogoo record, Nick and Colin, when it came to the idea of doing the B-sides for the singles, I don't know if anyone remembers B-sides, but a B-side was the reverse side to the main song on a single, and it was often a sort of throwaway sort of song. So a lot of people didn't give it the attention that, that it should deserve. But, but anyway, so the Kajigugu guys needed to record the B-sides on this album, and uh, Colin and Nick said, look, you know, why don't you just let Tim do the B-sides? And uh, the band said, fine, because they were happy with the way that I was working with them. So over a couple of weekends, I recorded the B-sides with the band, and I took the time to ask the band for the demos. I wrote some notes. I had some ideas of how I thought the song should be. I recorded with the band, and we mixed it together. And at the end, I said to them, as you have to sometimes doing this as a job, you have to be brave, you've got nothing to lose. I said, look, I know this is uh, 
a lot to ask, but I feel that I've contributed quite a lot towards these songs. Is there any way that you could give me some sort of co-production credit on these B-sides? And they said, absolutely, that's fine. Oh, that's kind of ballsy. Yeah, well, I mean, I had actually done that, so I, I felt like the worst that could happen is them say no. So I did sure, it, I did you. it, and uh, they agreed, and I thought, well, great, I've, I've got my first production credit, even if it is a B-side. But the great thing was that the label particularly liked one song that we cut, which was an instrumental called Kajagoogoo, and they said, we want to put it on the record. So I actually went from assisting on that album to producing one of the tracks on the album. So strangely enough, I got my first gold disc right there. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. But the thing that I always try to tell people, I mean, just because I've noticed this from my own life and from, you know, from everyone I know who's had any sort of success in music or the arts is that you have no idea where it's going to come from. I mean, you can plan to do things a certain way, but at the end of the day, you, you know, you have no idea which of your contacts or which project is going to lead to which thing or how it's going to be accepted by the world. You don't know. And oftentimes you can be working with an artist and think this is the one. And then nobody cares when it comes out. And then you can be working with somebody else and think, God, this is crap. And then it gets big or, you know, you just never, ever know, which is why I really think that people, especially going in, uh, need to approach every situation as professionally and level-headed and I guess with that type of enthusiasm you spoke about um, because you just you never know it's it'll often come from a place that you least expected absolutely true I couldn't agree with you more and in my particular career choices of artists have come from the strangest reference points uh, when I, I remember when I got the opportunity to produce Tears for Fears Roland had really loved the sound of the Tin Machine records that I'd made with David Bowie, which were chaotic, loud, um, live, which was very much the opposite of Tears for Fears. And yet that was the reference point that he had to work with me. And, you know, it just shows you that... Is that what he wanted for his own record? No. Or it's just that... Not at all. He, he thought that you captured something in Tin Machine just right. Yes, he thought it was a great example of what it was trying to be. So... Um, that was enough for him. But, uh, yeah, it, it, you, you can't uh, ever plan for these uh, opportunities, like you said, because the thing about having a hit record, more than anything, is it's more than just the great song and the great artist, and they're the two things that are most important. Um, it's more than just that, because then you add the great production, and then you've got to have the great manager and the great label and the great video. So for something to click... And, you know, this I'm talking more so of the old school type of thinking. It's all changed now with social media and stuff. But every duck had to be in line. And if one part of the chain was wrong, as you said, you could have made your greatest piece of work and it can be, you know, lost. You know, I think that it, part of that is still absolutely true. It's just morphed in the way that... Um just the delivery method is different. And there's still, I think, one more factor you didn't mention that is the ultimate factor, which is uh, you can have all those things lined up properly. The artist, the song, the production, the mix, the master, the manager, the booking agent, the label. And then if it doesn't resonate with the collective unconscious of the public, it is it doesn't matter. You have nothing. And that's the part that 
really is anybody's guess. I mean, some people kind of, kind of like with, you know, you see this in the stock market. There's some people who have somehow have this uncanny ability to know where it's going, but uh, really under under a lot of scrutiny, even that fails and you realize that nobody really knows. So there's that, the element of whether or not the public is going to receive it is anybody's guess. But I still think that now, um, even if uh, it's a more, I guess, amorphous uh, industry, you still need to have, it's almost like a vehicle and it's tires. You still, you know, you still need to have the, all the tires full of air, like the manager. Um, and if not a label, some dis distribution method, you know, you need to have all those things lined up or, uh, you're driving on a broken vehicle, even nowadays, I think. It's true. You're right. I mean, I, I, I do agree with what you're saying, but I think that also, in the old school way of radio before social media and when the record companies controlled what we heard in a way because they were able to either convince a radio station to play your song or they could pay for a radio station to play your song, whatever <laughs> method it took, they were able to control essentially what we were hearing and we were yeah. seeing on, on David Letterman, on um, Johnny Carson, whatever it was. So if you have a song and you, you manage to get it into people's heads 10 times a week on K-Rock, there's a far greater chance that that song yes. will be able to resonate. Because how many times have you heard a song and you think, oh, I'm not sure about it, and then you hear it a couple more times and you go, you know what, I really like it. And the only reason that you've liked it is because sometimes it just takes a couple of plays before it really does click. Well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, think about an album. I mean, how many times do you meet someone who loves an album and they'll say to you, well, I used to think that tracks seven and eight were the, you know, weren't so good, but now they're my favorite tracks on the album. And that was because they were benefiting from the old system of where we used to give everything a lot of time and a lot of opportunity to grow in our minds. Uh, and, um, you know, the way that society has gone now was so quick. Everything has to happen instantaneously, this ADHD culture that we have, that something that needs a little bit more time to germinate is often lost. Or it definitely can be. And what you're saying, I do believe to be true because, I mean, even down to marketing, there's a marketing cliche. It actually comes from old school uh, print marketing and billboards and stuff from those days. But uh, the idea that you need to see or a consumer needs to see something or come into contact with it somehow or hear about it. They need, it needs to be presented to them a minimum of seven times before they're ready to buy. And, you know, whether it's six or eight times or whatever, you know, I'm sure there's outliers that hear something the first time and love it. But just the, I mean, that idea, uh, mar marketers definitely believe that to be true, that absolutely you need to hit something multiple times. And marketing aside, uh, I have two thoughts here. Um, one is that I know that nowadays when I take in music or, um, or I notice that somebody else becomes a fan of it, there, there's still, um, human nature hasn't changed. You still need to come across something multiple times before you take it in. So for me to accept a new band, usually if someone recommends a band, it's I'm not going to even pay attention the first time. Maybe I'll remember the name of the band it, that they mentioned. And then 
later on, a few months later, someone else might mention it, then I might come across their song on YouTube and hear it or not hear it. And then a few months later, some a student will request it for Nail the Mix or something, and I'll listen to it again and be like, yeah, that's pretty cool. And over the course of many months and coming into contact with this artist and that song multiple times, do I start to develop um, an affinity for that song. That's absolutely right. So I definitely think what you're saying is true, and I don't think human nature has changed. And so not having the chance to go through that process, uh, a lot of stuff will get lost. And I also want to say that I do think you're right about um, about the older days. So I do think that it is different that we don't have gatekeepers the way we used to. But so back when I was first discovering metal in the early 90s, uh, we had Headbangers Ball. We had the magazines and uh, there was maybe college radio so three and then obviously uh whatever my friends talked about so there were these four methods to discover uh artists and then there was tower records near me and some uh mom and pop shop that's it so okay so two methods to buy it four methods by which i would discover it and so within those six different avenues there's only a limited amount of space that each artist can get. So if there's Megadeth, Metallica, Pantera, Anthrax, Testament, uh, and then some smaller bands, uh, you hear all of them because you really only have 10 to 20 bands to choose from, period. And so even if you don't like a band that much, like I was never a big Anthrax fan, for instance, you know, I come from a metal background. So I was never a huge Anthrax fan, but I still knew every single one of their songs because that's all there was to listen to. So um, I definitely think that the fact that there are no gatekeepers or very few gatekeepers and that labels could just say, you're going to hear this song 10 times a week now, um, had a big part to do with it because, again, even if I didn't love Anthrax, I still knew all of their songs. And, you know, the, obviously I liked some better than others, but uh, you still were somewhat a fan and you still bought the records, even if they weren't your favorite band. Whereas now, I mean, if you have 2,000 bands to choose from, you're, only, you're still only going to have time for 20. Yeah, you got no. We got we got no filter. That's the thing. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Is there's no filter, and it's sort of punk rock in many ways. I love the fact that you know people that don't care about genre so much now. They'll just find stuff they like. But in a way, to be able to make a band huge, it was easier when we were the gatekeepers of the filter, um, and now that filter is completely gone. I mean, you know, when you were saying about. Um, you know, to be able to connect with the public. That connection did come from marketing a lot of the time, as you pointed out, because how many times can we use an example of when a song was re-released for the second time that it became a hit? Uh, You know, you'd think that if it failed the first time, then maybe it wasn't any good, but that's not true. They did a better job of their marketing. No, that's definitely not true. Exactly. Then they do a better job. Uh, I think it happened with Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. It became huge on the second time they pushed it. And then it became a massive song. Um, you know, this is all really important stuff. We need to hear things more than once sometimes to, to be able to, to understand where something's coming from. It doesn't matter, as you said, whether it's 
food or or the opera or whatever. Sometimes you turn your nose or to something. Or Coca-Cola. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, I, I can remember um, when I was, um, you know, a young man thinking how embarrassing it was that every time there was olives on a, on, on a dish, I would always push them to the side. And I thought, well, that's not cool. Maybe there's something to olives that everyone else gets that I don't. So I made a point of saying, okay, well, every time, every time there's olives, have a couple and just deal with it and see what happens. And I did it over the space, had one every day. And, of course, now I love olives, but this is the way that the mind works, you know. You sometimes have to sort of try these things, try it out, go with it, and then eventually you find that you really appreciate something. But at first, your nose was turned up to it. So are you saying I should give avocados a chance? I think you should, mate. They're little, really good. Little by little. Avocado <laughs> toast, the trendiest thing you can eat at the moment. Man, I hate avocados so much. I haven't even been able to... Nothing with avocado for, you know, since I was a kid, but maybe I'll have a little at a time. May you, it would definitely make my life you're missing easier. Out, you're missing out texturally. Uh, put some olive oil and a little bit of salt on. You'll be rocking. <laughs> All right. I will uh, I'll give it a shot. You know, another thing that I think from the older days that also is is huge and we actually might be getting back to this with the new method. I think it got lost in the mid 2000s, but the fact that I know that many artists from older days uh, didn't experience their success until they were about three or four albums in sometimes uh, and they didn't get dropped. Uh, artists, they, it was called artist development and it was a part of the deal and you know, Records one and two, sometimes three, could be somewhat of a bomb. And I mean, you can. I know that Bruce Springsteen, for instance, that comes to mind. He was like that. Um, and a modern example, actually, of this still being true is Maroon Five. Um, Super Bowl performance aside, Maroon Five, uh, you know, arguably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, band in the world right now. Um, they that album that they broke with was out for five years, I believe, before it had a hit. They were a failure of a band, according to, uh, according to the standard of having a hit right away. And they just toured and toured and toured and toured. Yeah, they really and did. And uh, yeah, what that that song called "This Love." Um, mm -hmm. it then eventually became a hit, but it didn't. That didn't happen right away, no. and that's an that's a perfect example of what happens when you take the time to develop an artist. Well, absolutely, you can have a band the size of Maroon Five. I think there's a, there's a million examples of that. I mean, Bowie's early albums weren't exactly huge. They took the time to develop him as an artist. I mean, I I read an article recently. I'm sure you probably read the same one about Guns N' Roses, and how they were literally two days away from pulling the plug on Appetite for Destruction because it wasn't connecting at radio and it wasn't connecting the way they wanted to. And then somebody said, we've managed to get the video for, I think it was Welcome to the Jungle, on late night MTV at like two in the morning. And mm -hmm. they put the video out and the phone started ringing and these kids were saying, we really like this. Yes. And, and he was able to go I back into that. the office and say, just give me a few more days. And of course, the rest is history. I mean, it's just insane. I mean, that album was almost overlooked it's crazy to think about it because obviously we don't you know we only live in one reality but there's so many stories like that it definitely leads me to be, to believe that when people say that it's impossible to have huge artists now 
in the new record industry, I think they're totally wrong. Um, I think that what that if people want there to be huge artists, a la Guns N' Roses um, or Bowie or whatever, you need to follow the whether or not it's with the same traditional gatekeepers. That part doesn't matter. No, but what does matter is that artists are allowed to develop in public view. Yep. long enough to hit their stride. And you can look to Maroon 5 as a modern example of that this still works. If you want huge bands, it has to be done, in my opinion, has to be done that way. Absolutely, I agree. So music industry, I think, hurt itself by forgetting that for a little while. I know, it's a massive mistake. It's a massive oversight. In Austin here, we have a, um, a charity organization called Black Fret, as in fret, as okay. in a guitar. And um, what we do in Austin is people pay to become members of this organization, and they get to see all the new artists in town. And their membership all gets gathered together, and at the end of the year, we vote on the, our favorite new artists, and they get given grants, and the grants are like ten or $15,000, but it's enough for these artists to be able to make a record or go out and touring. And the money yeah. has to be unlocked. They get grant dollars that are unlocked. So if they make an album, they can unlock $5,000, say, or if they play a show out of town, they can unlock $500. And it's one of the few artist development ideas that's around. And it's pretty revolutionary when it comes to America because the labels have stopped doing it, but at least... Here in Austin, there's a there's an avenue there that's uh, available to artists to try and get some money to help them start out in their career and make music, which is what they're supposed to be doing. I love that it's unlocked uh, due to, you know, or I guess uh, subject to what they do. So it's not just like, here's 15,000, go to Vegas. Yeah, go and buy uh, TV. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> that's really, really great. I think that there should be about 500 more of those grants. Uh, absolutely. Um, and we have, they have also, they have an advisory board. So the advisory board are people like myself, other people who are in the industry, tour managers, lawyers, um, managers, and they can they can access the advisory board and ask for their advice. So if you're an Austin band who's part of the Black Fret, they often would write to me and say, hey, Tim, we're, we're recording our song, and uh, here's, here's what we've got. What do you think? And if I've got some time, I'll, of course, respond to them, which I do, and give them my input. And they have access to this advisory board full of you know, people who've worked in the industry for 20, 30 years. That's phenomenal. I really hope that people listening uh, take that as an inspiration to see how they can get involved in similar things, because I know that there's multiple organizations all, all over the country and world that do similar things. I, I haven't heard of one exactly like that, but who do offer some way to support artists. And uh, I do think that it's it's hugely important because it's not it's not about... Um, so, okay, so there's this misconception, I think, where some people believe that an artist should only have money coming in uh, if the market agrees. And I get it. I understand that kind of thinking. I don't believe in, uh, in handouts where they're not um, warranted. However, art and commerce, while they do need to work together, art uh, has to be developed and it can't be developed in a vacuum. There's no, there's no church like there was to just support composers or sculptors for their entire lives. Like, there used to be. Mm -hmm. um, if we want art to keep uh, developing, we as a society need to decide that it's important enough 
Absolutely. And I don't and I don't mean that there needs to be some law about it. No, uh, not at all. I think it's up to private individuals to do it, but we need to decide that we're going to give artists that opportunity because that is what that is the historical method by which artists get great is they're supported. Absolutely. To be a patron of the arts. Um, is something that usually we think of to do with the, the symphony orchestras or classical music or, or theatre. But why would that be any different to any other form of art? I mean, this is all that Black Fret is trying to do. It's the same sort of thing. You're patron of local music. And, um, you know, I, I think, as you said, this is something that everyone has to accept, that to give people an opportunity to start being creative is so vital to our society. Absolutely. The thing is that you kind of have to do it on faith because chances are that when, while you're supporting local artists, a lot of them won't get to the, you know, they won't get to that next level because, you know, let's face it, most bands are not meant for greatness. But you, since you can't know what's coming up in the future, um, you just have to have an attitude, in my opinion, of being a supporter of this so that when the right artist gets in that situation they can then yeah flourish yeah um absolutely you know some artists are fortunate in that they are born into a wealthy family or have a you know industry connections that are very very high powered you know that that happens too but that's that as a leaving that as being the only way to uh, develop your art without already being big is kind of shortchanging where this can go. So, yeah, I, I do actually believe that we can have mega artists. Um, I don't think that that has to be over. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I mean, you know, let's, let's try not to think, focus too much attention on the uh, the people who have the connections because it's, it's sort of uh, that nepotism is sort of ugly. But but uh, yeah, I think it's very important that we give people this opportunity. Well, you know what? If you don't mind, I just want to talk about the nepotism for one moment. Um, I do think that while that does exist, I don't think that it will really, for the most part, make anyone's careers. I think that at most it opens a door, but but it actually is pretty destructive uh, for a, an artist's long-term career, usually, because if you get, I've noticed that if you get a door opened before you're ready, that's actually like career suicide. It's much better for an artist to have opportunities present themselves when they're actually ready to make good on them and uh, to actually utilize resources properly. Yeah. That's just what I've noticed. No, you're right. You're right. So, all right, let's go back to talking about you. So just a couple of decades ago, kind of had to be in a big, lavish studio in order to have the proper equipment to engineer a song, pretty much. And uh, nowadays, there's way more engineers. There's also a much lower barrier to entry as far as getting gear. Do you feel like the surge in technology has contributed to the market getting saturated or do you consider it a positive thing or negative? Like what are your thoughts on, I guess, the home recording revolution and also the, and how that's contributed to the demise of, I guess, the big studio industry? Because, you know, we talked a lot about the old days, but what do you think of the new days? Well, I have so many feelings about the new um, 
paradigm that we're in now. I mean, first of all, without this technology and the way that it's been developed, if without this, we would have really struggled because the way that the finance worked and the way that the money went down and the way that the budgets went down and the way the royalties went down, it would be very difficult to survive and be able to be as creative as we are today without the new technology. So on one hand, the, the internet was taking away from, you know, from us because people were sharing files. But on the other hand, we were sharing recording files and uh, being able to mix music that we wouldn't have been able to reach before from, say, artists in Australia or India or wherever. So, you know, and, and the fact that we could now make professional quality recordings from smaller studios that a lot of us, including myself, have at home was a, was a godsend, really, and it was a saviour to, to our careers. There was too much compromise being made on the artistic side when the money came out. I remember the first time that I saw this sort of conflict of interest um, was when uh, labels would start to come to you with a fund of how much money they had to get something done. Because previously to that, an A&R man would ask you to work on a project and then you would work and you would choose and you'd select what studios you felt was right for the artist, how much pre-production time you needed, etc., etc. And the money really was controlled way above your head and you just asked for what you needed and it was pretty much done. But when the fund occurred, there were some parameters to what you could actually do. And by, hold on, by fund you mean budget? I mean budget. It was literally like, okay, okay we want you to mix this song. Let's pick a number out of the air. We've got $3,000, so we need this done. So your responsibility as the mixer then would be to find the studio yourself, negotiate the rate, negotiate the rent for any outboard gear you need, Make sure everything was included, the tapes being picked up, drops back to the label, and your own fee. So it was a conflict of interest because when you'd start to work on the song and you'd already got the good rate at the studio, you may feel at the end of the first night that you just needed a little more time, maybe another day just to get things right. Maybe you need a few things that you wanted to work on. But in your mind, you're thinking, well, hang on, if I use another day at the studio... I actually won't make very much money at all, which is not going to go down too well with the missus. Um, and uh, so, you know... <laughs> That's this legitimate, It's though. legitimate, and you have to family to support, so this is no good. This is a conflict right here. I want another day to make this right, but there's no money to do it. So this is why the creation of home recording studios and the necessity for the new technology, being able to do this from home, was so vital... Because now I have a setup at home, which is a combination of analog and digital. It's mine. And if somebody comes to me to mix a song, if I love that song, if I've got nothing else going on, I might spend four days on it. And you know what? It doesn't matter because I own all the gear now. And that is, that is the most important thing is that we don't compromise the creativity. And so, you know, there's good and bad. As I said, I could talk about it forever, about the way things were in the past. I loved the fact that you could walk into these amazing million-dollar studios. It was, the, it was fun times. Um, I, I loved being able to be eye-to-eye -eye with the artist and be able to deal with them one-to-one -one because that was probably 35 40% of the job was to be able to be somebody that artists wanted to be with in a studio and that you could understand what they were thinking and give them what they were thinking and help to make a great record. Now that art is gone completely because we work in isolation. So there's lots and lots of different things that are good and some things that are bad that have come, but the fact is that now at least we can continue to be creative and make music. It's just all be in a different fashion. Hey everybody, if you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. 
URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you remember, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, and Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one -on -one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy slash enhanced to find out more. So on the topic of being able to look artists in the eye, um, I guess, I mean, you still kind of can do that, uh, but there, uh, obviously there's a lot more remote work. Uh, do you find that that's gotten in the way of learning what the artist wants? Uh, has it, I mean, how do you go about figuring that part out? And look, I fully know what you're talking about. And I think that that, being in person, not just for production. I mean, there's a reason for why people still fly to business meetings when they could just be on Skype. Yeah. There's, there's so much communication that's nonverbal between humans uh, that's all about body language and vibe. And that shit is so important. And that's why deals, you know, all the most important deals are done in person. And that's why I believe that you look at being able to look a artist you're working with in the eye and yeah. um, to understand their vision. But how do you get, a, how do you get around that now? How do you deal with it? It's very interesting because once again, there's this sort of good and bad about that. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that when you send a mix of a song that you've spent a couple of days on to an artist that you've never met, you better make sure that that is a great piece of work because your personality is not going to push it over the line. It has to be able to stand up for itself. It sorts the men out from the boys. It's all That's very well great. having all the gear, but you've got to have, you know, no point in having all the gear and no idea. You know, you've got to have a vision for this particular piece of music and, and, and provide a, a, a great mix to them. You also can't trick them with volume. No, you can't. You can't <laughs> yeah, you can't turn it up loud. Crank it up on the big ones. See, they're coming in. No, you can't do that anymore. But, you know, there is something also by, you know, if somebody walks in the room 
and you have a connection with them and you, you can get to from A to B much faster when they're sitting next to you because there's none of this, um, I'd like the guitars to be a little bit more present in the chorus and when you're in isolation, you go too far and they say, no, no, back a bit and you go back and they go, no, no, if somebody's sitting right next to you, you sort of look them in the eye and you're moving the fader and you go, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And we, we, you can sense it because you can see you can see their face light up because that combination of drums and guitar is just where they want to feel it. So it's very fast when you're one-to-one with someone. And, and I'd say maybe 10% of my clients now still fly into Austin and they come to the studio and we close the mixes together, which is a really nice way of doing things is you get an opportunity to mix a song, try some things, get them wrong. It's much better to get things wrong when nobody's sitting beside you. Get it wrong, put it right, find how the song works best, and then bring them in to make the last few changes. That's quite good. But, you know, as I said, sadly, only about 10% of people can either afford or want to actually be bothered to do that. But, you know, uh, and, and, and apart from anything else, in the old way of when artists did have to come down to a studio, it was sort of fun, really, because... You know, if you're mixing for an artist and, you know, whether it be Ozzy or David Bowie, who, who wouldn't want to be in the studio and talk to them and, you know, share a few war stories with them and see what they're really like as people? That was part of the fun, you know, aspect of being a music producer or mixer is getting to meet the people. So I sort of see that as a loss. Earlier this year, I mixed a record for Jeff Goldblum. And uh, he made a, a, a jazz album, and it was the actor. Yeah, it was a, a yeah. He's a he's a great jazz piano player, and it was all. I cut. had no idea. Yeah, it was got it was on. It's, it did Man really of many well. talents. Yeah, he he's really good, and it was recorded um, as a producer. I mix a lot for called Larry Klein, who actually was up for producer of the year last week at the Grammys. Um, and I mix a lot of Larry's records, and he produced the record, and he went to Capitol Studios and cut the album in a live setting. They, they set up the, 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 the main recording room at Capitol and put loads of chairs in and made it like a live show because Jeff's performs a lot live. And they cut the album in two days, and uh, once the album was finished being recorded, uh, the hard drives were sent to me in Austin, and I sat all on my own in my little studio mixing it and having a great time. But you know, on my own, and I never got to meet Jeff, and people say, oh, what was Jeff Goldblum like? Usual story. I, I didn't actually get to meet the guy, which is, I think, is a bit disappointing, quite frankly. <laughs> it, it's interesting to me when uh, people say the I didn't get to meet him story, but after being on tour with somebody for three months or something, you hear, like, I've heard, it's interesting, I've heard um been friends with like an opening band that toured with some mega artists and it's like what was that person like in real life don't know never met her so but so speaking of gear you're talking about gear in your hybrid setup when did you switch over when did you start to go hybrid and was that a uh, difficult transition for you um i'd have to say yes um purely because it was a fear of the unknown. I can remember I was actually recording an album with Tears for Fears at, uh, in Record Plant in Los Angeles, and somebody said, would you like to see a, a demonstration of, um, I think it was called Sonic Solutions at the beginning, um, the, one of the first um, sort of digital with the uh, visual side to it. And I went to a demonstration, and which was obviously the future of Pro Tools and stuff like that, and uh, they showed me the audio being recorded on the screen and my immediate reaction was 
I'm sorry, I don't, I don't really think I need to see audio and uh, it's not really of any great interest to me. I can, you know, I have some great studios and great gear and um, no thanks. And I sort of turned my back on it initially. And it was only when um, I began to see how many other producers and how many records were starting to be made with Pro Tools that I figured out if I don't work out how this Pro Tools thing works... I won't have a career much longer, so it's about time that I figured it out. So I got myself a Pro Tools rig, and, and I set it up in the dining room at my home in Studio City because I was living in Los Angeles at the time. Had a few lessons from an engineer that I knew and uh, slowly made the transition into the world of Pro Tools. And I must be honest that I don't regret it at all. I'm actually now one of the biggest fans of the, uh, of the, of the Pro Tools and, and the creativity that's come with it. That reminds me a little bit of, um, I used to know a guy that was, I guess um, he screwed up his career. But at the time when I was a teenager, he he kind of ran the biggest demo studio in Atlanta where I was growing up. And he, uh, he, he did pre-production for a bunch of bigger bands. So the bigger bands would come to him for a week, uh, sometimes two weeks, do pre-production. Then they'd go to the real producer to do the album. Um, and I remember that somehow uh, he had gotten involved with Molly Crew or something like that. Um, to And things got weird because they were one of the first bands that got their own systems and st like they got computers and started to make their own demos with computers. And he lectured them about how Computers are for games, not for music or yeah. work. That's great. And uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, that was the end of that gig. But um, yeah, it's just it's so fascinating. Like trying to put myself back in that time period, and I re remembering engineers being so against it. I tell you what, that, that you can rom you can romanticize way too heavily about the days of analog, and you know, as somebody who made you know many 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 albums on analog. I can assure you that when we set the band up live in the studio and we heard the sound of that band playing live coming through the monitors, we were always disappointed when we heard the playback. And the great thing about Pro Tools now is that you have the control. You know, the fact is that if you want to um, get that analog sound, if you want that distortion, which is essentially what analog tape did, it, it distorted what you were recording by compressing it and whatever, you can have that. You just need to be in control. You're the boss of the technology. And so many people um, make the mistake of thinking that, the you know, that, oh, it's the computers and the, and the technology and the Pro Tools. But no, you're the boss. You have every opportunity when you hear a sound come through your monitors to say, that is not what I want to hear. I want it to be warmer. I want it to be less compressed. I want it to be more compressed. But you are the boss of the technology. And, you, and when you sit in that driving seat, you shouldn't compromise. You don't have to use the excuse. Uh, one, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. People will say, well, if you record on Pro Tools and you get a verse that's a bit sloppy in the performance when you're tracking, and then you get the second verse that's perfect, it's got the perfect timing, people will chop in the second verse into the first verse, and the whole record starts to sound really boring and too perfect. Well, my argument to that, obviously, simply is, why take the second verse and put it there? Why not use the sloppy verse, first verse, 
and put that in the second verse so your overall performance is a little bit sloppier and cooler so the technology's actually given you a sloppier performance you're the one that's making the decision to make it perfect so you know never forget that you're in the driving seat you don't have to use um, auto-tune you don't have to use beat detective these are things that you make a conscious decision to use and, and, and never forget that you know, those two particular things, auto-tune and beat detective, were never something that was desired by the music listening public. Um, this was something that was useful to us, but people were not bringing back their records because they were a little bit out of tune or a little bit out of time. Um, you know, always remember to be in the driving seat and it'll be a lot simpler. You know, we want to hear humans and not technology. I think it's a very convenient thing to do to blame other factors for bad results but it's it's i think it's super empowering when you rem are reminded or when you remember that uh, you are in control yeah um but it's also i guess scarier for for lots of people and they can't say that they can't they can't say well the uh i don't have that vibe so this isn't going to sound good um now they they can control how much or how little of that vibe uh, there will be on it and it makes a priority on, it puts a priority on intentionality and with intentionality there comes responsibility and I think that it's a lot easier to say uh, well I just can't do it with this gear that the magic's gone. That's bollocks. Than to say I am now in control of how much or how little of that magic is and through my decisions it will either be great or not, and uh, shit, I'm now in control. I think that that's scarier for people. Yeah, but as, as we said, it's all about decisions that you make. You can use this technology to your advantage so well. I mean, there's so many things that you can do with it nowadays. I can remember still running mixes and thinking, I don't like the sound of the DSer. I'm going to manually turn the filter on the top of the channel so that I get rid of those harsh S's. So as it went to tape, you'd be turning the filter. Now, of course, with Pro Tools, if there's an S that you don't like, not only can you re-EQ it or turn it down, you can put your own S in, which I've done a few times, and make a nice, smooth, bright S and just slot it in, and no one will ever know the better. I mean, the control is, is outrageous of what you can do now. And uh, as I said, once again, always be in the driving seat, and then you'll be in good shape. It was actually, the, I think, in many ways, the band's... Uh, they got it quicker than the producers because the producers were so, uh, as I said, romantically linked to, to analog and, and the past. But I found I did a record with Goldfinger. Um, I produced a record and John Feldman was the guitar player and he's obviously a very successful producer now, but he got it very fast and he sort of showed me about Pro Tools. We would argue and fight about drum takes and he knew about Beat Detective before I did. So as producer, I learned a lot from him about that. And I also did a record with Switchfoot fairly early on. And we did all that in Pro Tools. And those guys would be, you'd, you'd, you'd do two or three bass takes. And the bass player, I remember Tim saying to me, oh, can you just send me those three bass takes? I'll just be in the lounge. I'll pop together a comp. And, you know, they, they knew the technology and were using it faster than the producers were in that time. So do you think then that some of these older records came out great? and succeeded despite the technology? I think that um, my overall view um, of records and their success, um, sadly, is simply 
that people enjoy songs and performances, and they enjoy them in a manner of different presentations. I don't think that people enjoy music any more or any less now because of Pro Tools. I agree. They, you can record something terribly in Pro Tools, or you can record something really well. The technology has got fuck all to do with people's enjoyment of the music. Um, you know, when you think about a sound like the Muscle Shoals sound or or the sound of Phil Spector, that, that sound wouldn't mean anything if he hadn't recorded a good song. You'll only remember the songs that were great in the Phil Spector sound. The sound itself is irrelevant until it's connected with an artist, a performance, and a song. The song is the king. And, um, you know, that's my piece of advice to any young producers and engineers, is be very conscious of the artists and the music you make, because... No one's really going to care how well something's recorded if they don't connect to the actual music that you're making. Um, and a lot of that is unfortunately down to luck. I mean, I've been very fortunate to work with some great songs and uh, I, I will probably be known by those songs rather than the mixes themselves. But, you know, I was like 21 years of age and as a studio engineer, and this is not because they, they looked out for me and went for me, this artist cutting crew booked Utopia Studios and I was the house engineer. So I mixed I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight. And, you know, that was a very important record for me to be involved with in the 80s because it was a number one in America. But that was the important thing was the song, not me. And I was the guy who was lucky enough to balance it. And hopefully I feel I did it, you know, it's proud and, you know, it sounds pretty good. But you know, it wouldn't have meant anything if the song wasn't as good as it was. And a question about the the analog days. Um, do you think that emphasis on the song was, I guess, in some ways more at the forefront uh, with engineers just because they were that much more limited with the gear? Like, they, there was no... If there's no beat detective and there's no auto-tune and there's no easy, quick way to comp and you know, delete the space be between mm -hmm. Tom hits. And, you know, if that doesn't exist, well, then what are you left to focus on? Uh, maybe it is the song. Do you find that maybe it was that way? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think that, you know, as an engineer and a producer or a mixer, you're trying to bring the best out with what you have and with what tools you have. In those days, there were a particular set of tools and people made amazing sounding records with analog. There's no doubt they might be worried about you know, how much level they were putting onto the half-inch tape or how much, how well the, master, uh, the uh, maintenance engineer had lined up the machine, an art that's obviously non-existent anymore now. But you could go to a studio and the, and, and the, the maintenance engineer would be able to line up the machine so you got a, an amazing low end. We had a different set of technical and things that we worried about, but ultimately we were trying to craft the best possible piece of work that we could with the song. Anyone who loses sight of the song, whether it's with Pro Tools or in the old way, will have the same results. You're going to fail. But if the song is what's driving you and you use the tools that are around you, whether they're the old tools or the new tools, you'll be successful. I think that that's great, great advice. Um, I want to change track a little and talk about some specific albums you've worked with and a couple questions about 10 by Pearl Jam. I think I was 13 when that got big, and I remember how that, you know, that was one of those records that, along with Nevermind, 
really changed the world, uh, really changed rock music. Um, and, you know, people that didn't experience that shift from the 80s to the 90s don't, you know, maybe they might not understand it that well, but it was a massive, massive uh, cultural shift, uh, massive. Um, can you talk a little bit about your work in that era and maybe anything specifically that you remember about that record? Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to give you some of the uh, context of how that all went down. I ended up mixing Pearl Jam's 10 because I already had a relationship with a couple of the members of the band from working on the previous band that they had, which was called Mother Love Bone. I mixed their album Apple in Los Angeles a couple of years previous. Sadly, Andrew Wood, the singer for Mother Love Bone, died and a couple of the members of the band decided they would form a new band and that band was called Mookie Blaylock and they'd found a new singer from San Diego called Eddie Vedder. He was like a, a surfing dude who had this incredibly unique voice. Anyway, we took a little meeting together, we went to see some basketball and in the end it was decided that I would mix their new project which eventually became Pearl Jam's 10. Um, I wanted to get out of Los Angeles. I'd been there mixing for a long time and we decided that we would mix the album in, in the Surrey countryside um, of a, in a studio called Ridge Farm, which is a very old farmhouse with a lovely Neve console and uh, accommodation. So the band all flew over from Seattle and, uh, you know, we basically got to work and we did a few small overdubs. We did some guitars on a live. We put the solo on and Mike basically blew us away in one take on the second morning. Uh, I added some percussion. Uh, we did a few bits of vocals with Eddie, but basically the record was done and it had been recorded very well. The album was actually recorded in Seattle at London Bridge Studios with uh, Rick Parashar as the producer and Dave Hillis had engineered it and everything sounded really good. It was a, a very traditional band recording. Um, it was recorded over three or four weekends. Drums, bass, guitars, vocals, backing vocals, a little bit of keyboards. So, in fact, um, there was actually a lot of opportunity for a mixing engineer to to really elaborate on what they'd done. There was a lot of space for being able to create atmospheres, have a section where you kill the room, make everything really dry, then go deep again with the reverb, backwards reverbs, delays, all those sort of things. So it was a great opportunity for me and having the band there was great too because we would basically mix one song a day. It was a very low or no pressured sort of album because there was very little in the way of expectation. No one knew what was to come. Uh, all I knew was that this was a great band from Seattle with some really cool songs and a great vocalist, and uh, I was mixing the record. Didn't really think too much about it, and we weren't being looked over by A&R every day. Michael Goldston, who signed the band, came in at the end. So we just had fun, and uh, the band would check the mix every morning, and uh, we'd make any changes that needed to be done. And uh, it all went very smoothly. In the, in the context of what was going on in Seattle, as we, I was living in Surrey in England at the time, I was not aware of the Seattle sound. And the sound that was around at that time was, of course, bands like Poison, Tesla, Motley Crue, etc., etc. Uh, I can remember I used to often enjoy a break from mixing by when the rewind button was spinning the tape back to the beginning. I'd often put the MTV on and just hear what was going on. And 
I remember Scorpions, uh, Winds of Change was the song that was on MTV all the time. But anyway, the music that was being mainstream, or that was mainstream at the time, certainly was not the way that the grunge movement was about to become. So interestingly enough, I was not afraid of reverbs. I was not afraid of delays and things like that, which it became, you know, not a cool thing to use later. But at that time, I was certainly not afraid of uh, being uh, adventurous with things like that. And the band didn't seem to have a problem with it. So it all went very smoothly. Now, looking back, of course, the sound changed very much. Um, we had a lot of success with the record, but our record was wetter than a lot of the other records that came out of the Seattle scene. It was one of the first, of course, but that, that's, that's exactly why the scene hadn't quite evolved yet. But the band later had the opportunity to revisit that album with Brendan, and they probably revisited it, I don't know, many, many years later. But as you know, in the music industry, everything goes round in circles, and by the time they revisited it and dried the whole 10 album up and made it, you know, more raw, music had already come back to being about reverb again. So, in fact, the album that I mixed suddenly sounded more contemporary than the new one, in my opinion. And secondly, you know, when you make or you mix music, you, you are responding to that moment in time, whether you like it or not. It should be left that way because it is what it is. It represents that moment in time. Another thing that's uh, interesting about the 10 album, I find, is that its presentation was a really nice bridge across to the, the new sound that was coming. It wasn't an extreme jump from the hair metal bands of the 80s into the dry, garagey sound of Seattle. Ten, not intentionally, I must say, but it's turned out that it worked very well because it had elements of the old and the new all joined together. It was a sort of stepping stone, as you will, um, across from, from the metal to the grunge scene. Yeah, I have good, very good memories of making that record, and uh, I was very fortunate to be part of it, that's for sure. I wonder if there's a, a deeper lesson here about the uh, that reverb story, because just tell me your thoughts on this, but oftentimes, and I agree with this, that you hear artists, songwriters, great producers, even film directors just say, don't chase trends, you have to do what what feels right to you when you're making the art and be true to the art. Uh, and because if you chase a trend, who knows, by the time what you're doing is released, that trend might be over anyways. Absolutely. So, mm -hmm. so it kind of it tells me that, you know, you were just pursuing what uh, seemed right for the record, the, the reverbs, but... Like you said, by the time it was re-released, those reverbs were back in. So in a way, you were on the cutting edge, but you can't predict that stuff. No, you, it's, I always, I mean, I've said this before, but, you know, you can't go back to your high school photograph and Photoshop your haircut as much as you'd like to. That's the way you <laughs> looked. That is the way you looked at that moment. That is the way that record looked to us at that moment. And we were responding to everything that was around us and everything that we'd listened to to that point and that's what came out 
And we were pretty happy with it at the time. And when everything changes and everything goes dry, it's very easy to go, oh, I wish I'd, I wish, I, you know, I, I, I can't go there. I mean, you know, I listened back to records from 60s and 70s. I wouldn't change a thing. In fact, when technology got better and people started to remix things and make them sound better, how many times do we not like the better version, even if it is technically? I can't think of a single time. No, exactly. It's like, I mean, this is the thing is that there's an expression that we use in the industry called demoitis. And there was a period in time when people would say, you know, oh, they fall in love with the demo. That's all it is. It's demoitis. What you've done is better. It's always difficult to better something um, with a cover version, say. Even if you do it better musically, sonically, people will love a song the way that they are presented to it to them the first time because it has a, an emotional connection. And if the first time you fall in love with a song, it's a bit sloppy and it's a little bit out of tune, if it is emotive and you fall in love with it, you don't want to hear it played properly and you don't want to hear it in tune, which is why so many great songs are not perfect. We strive for perfection when sometimes perfection isn't what's required. Leave things alone, you know. When you're recording, I learned this a long time ago, if you're recording something, try and beat it. If you can beat it, great. If you can't, import the demo. Import the demo guitar. It's got a really cool fucked up sound that was recorded through a, you know, a plug-in. It doesn't matter. It has something magical about it. And learn to accept it. Put your ego aside, import it, and then better the whole thing. I mean... You know, I, I remember Jimmy Iving. I worked with him, and he he used to often go back to demos. I found that out through people that worked around him. They'd say, "Oh, Jimmy, Jimmy recorded it twice and went back to the demo." And at the time, thinking, "Oh, he'd failed." But you know, I realise now he was on the case. You know, because it's a far bigger man to accept the fact that there's something special that you haven't recorded and use that than to try and push something onto the public that's just substandard. You know, that goes along with something I've always said that part of being a great producers knowing when to get out of the way yeah absolutely sit at the back and smoke a fat cigar if they're great if they're rocking take all the credit for it let them do their thing if you know <laughs> if you know that what they're doing is great sometimes that's happened sometimes you're actually literally in there replaying guitars when they've gone home dropping in every high note you know it's going to be swings and roundabouts some projects are going to be easy some aren't but um, absolutely, you know, don't change things that don't need to be changed just because you feel that you need to be able to show what you added. So speaking of adding stuff and how you approach a project, um, but you've obviously worked on a huge, wide variety of, of artists and, you know, all the way from something like Porcupine Tree to Aussie. Do, would you take a different approach with something like Porcupine Tree than an Aussie record? Not, not in my head. The artist is obviously going to lead the way with the material that they create. My job is to help them make the best possible version of what they're trying to do. And it was a conscious decision on my part years ago to, to work with different types of music. And, you know, in the last few years, I've even made quite a lot of jazz records. But it would be really dull to be just the guy that makes um, new metal or, or, or jazz or whatever. It's far more fun to be able to work on different types of genres of music, and particularly growing up in the UK where our radio was based around the idea of all music as opposed to genre-based radio stations. That was something that was never a problem to me. I like, I like lots of stuff, so um, I like working with different types of music. And not only that, but if you know something about heavy metal, you could actually bring that knowledge to a jazz record and 
the artists say, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of that before, but you had because you've made a lot of records in other different styles. So there's a lot to be said for um, being able to work with different genres of music. And, you know, as I said, it's, it's all about the song. That's the most important thing. How do I make this song the best it can be? Is it the vocal? In which case, the instrumentation must not get in the way of what he's trying to say. Is it the lyric? Even more so. Let's make sure that I don't lose a word. Is the lyric poor, but the groove's good? Okay, let's get the vocal to be a, an instrument. It's almost like part of the groove because I want the groove to be the whole thing. Every single thing that you listen to, you're making a conscious decision about what you think is the important aspect of that particular song. And uh, if you follow that lead, then it, it, it all seems to make sense. That's a great answer. I guess uh, with a, an artist like Porcupine Tree, what I'm wondering about is how much of yourself do you bring to the table when you're dealing with, uh, I guess, that level of brilliance plus skill? Because uh, I I, th I think that not every artist has that much ability, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There are certain you know, you, you, your, um, your input is tempered by the people that surround you. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I found it hard to suggest to David Bowie that, you know, maybe he could possibly redo something. But, you know... <laughs> I can imagine. These people, if they're really great, and he was, uh, they don't have a problem with listening to input at all. It's often the more insecure people who are not open to ideas. But, uh, you know, with the porcupine tree, for example, I mean, they had actually made a great sounding record already. I mean, it did sound really good. And my job was to try and just, you know, sometimes mixing is bringing something from, from you know, 70 to 90. You know, you're just bringing up the quality of what they've done. It's fine tuning. It's chiseling out frequencies to let things speak. It's allowing things to, to drop down and other things to speak in their place. You know, small, subtle things like that. And other times, as a mixer, it's, you know, it's a hatchet job. You're starting from scratch. You're like, okay, and this happens more, sadly more often than not these days is you think, okay, well, the drums are terrible, so I'm going to replace the snare drum. I'm going to add my own room sounds. I'm going to replay the bass. I'm going to add a new part in the chorus. I'm going to fix that vocal and tune it in the, in the pre-chorus. And you can, do, you can do so much. So, you know, once again, it's, it's all about looking at what's in front of you and saying, what do I need to do to make this the best it can be? And sometimes that journey is, is really long, and, and other times it's really very pleasant and very simple. I mean, I think that, you know, Porcupine Tree was sort of to the end of the time when people would spend maybe a couple of months making an album, and they'd make an album with somebody who had made a lot of albums before, a reputable producer. They'd be in a studio that was a great studio. They'd have microphones that were really, you know, top-class microphones. So when it came to the mixing, there was a vision that had already been clearly marked out. And you didn't come in and stamp all over that vision because, you know, it didn't need to be. There was a, it, was, it was already sounding great. Nowadays, an artist can often be given, you know, we've only got this amount of money, let's get into a studio and get it done. So they're working in a studio that may not be so good, the microphones may not be so good, then performance may not be so good, they might not have time to try things. So at the mixing stage, you've got a hell of a lot to achieve because, you know, you, you, you've got to get it up to the level that we did before. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's challenging, that's, that's for sure. I want to key in on something you were just saying, that given the power of tools 
these days. When you get something to mix, you can go ahead and just redo the bass, re-edit this, add that, replace this other thing. And, you know, it's almost borders on secondary production or a secondary production process. How, how do you feel about that? Well, I feel simply that, you know, when I finish mixing something, if I've added a lot of things, I'll say to the artist, could I get a co co-production credit as well as the mix credit? Fair enough. And nine times out of ten, it, if, they love, if they love what you've done, you know, they will be absolutely fine with that. And I always make a point of saying to anybody that I work for or mix for, look, I'm going to try some things, I'm going to give you everything I've got, and if you don't like something, it's one you know, one mute button and that part is gone. But I'll put it on there anyway because I feel that I deserve to at least give you that. Uh, and then you can make your decision. And uh, any artist would be happy to at least hear something, you know? Yeah, I think as long as they feel comfortable with their ability to say no if they don't like it, yeah, absolutely. Of course. Yeah, I mean, it's a whole different time now. So, you know, producers are often their last... You know, producers are, are often mixers now, like myself. I, I very rarely produce things. So a lot of bands are very happy to have a producer who's mixing the record at the end. And if you need to add some percussion or whatever it is that you're going to add it. And uh, if, if they don't like it, it's, as I said, it's a simple mute. But it just seems to be the way that mixing has gone these days. So we've talked a lot about modern mixing versus old school mixing, modern production versus old school. One of the other things, and I guess we touched on Beat Detective and Autotune, but yeah, one of the things that also is hugely different now is the ability to edit. And, uh, you know, there that's a whole other can of worms, I think, by which you can really make something great or make it terrible. What are your thoughts on, uh, I guess, the ability to edit the life out of a track now versus just, you know, do some very basic things like in the old days uh yeah a lot of people bag on modern productions because of that ability uh, and they say that you know everything is fake and edited to hell and back and that it just destroys music what do you think about that aspect of things well, I think <laughs> I've got an opinion on that, that's for sure. I mean, you know, a lot of the time when people listen to music and they're the sort of person that complains, they, what they seem to be hearing is, is not people but technology. And, you know, I, I understand that. Uh, a lot of records to me sound very small and, you know, part of that is because of the technology. Um, they seem to get away with it because of what we talked about earlier because even if it's if it's a great song even if it sounds a bit small people don't really care because they want to sing along so luckily they get a pass but as far as the production of it and the technology it has a lot to be desired and and you know the technology has given us this opportunity like we said to use our eyes and our eyes can make us make some very poor decisions because nowadays we often tend to see something as being wrong rather than listen um i know it's uh, something that a lot of people do and i'll say it anyway but when i mix things i often when it gets close to being where i feel it's right i'll turn the monitor off or close my eyes but generally speaking i find it easier to turn the monitor off and just listen through the speakers and it's amazing how when you um, you stop doing, you don't engage your eyesight into the process. It's almost like part of your brain gives more emphasis on the ears. Um, I like to think of it as the Stevie Wonder approach. Um, <laughs> but basically, you know, you, you, you're concentrating 
on nothing but the sound and you hear things very clearly because no one else is going to see it like you do but we make a lot of decisions upon our eyes and I think that, that that's a, a, a mistake um, drum wise you know a kick drum and a snare drum or a, you know a, a tom fill if they don't hit exactly at the same moment you know you get a slight flam but that flam is what other people would call as the size um, the, the, the way that a kick drum and a bass guitar and a guitar line up. If you listen to a great rock recording and put it into Pro Tools and analyze it, the guitar may be slightly ahead of the kick and the bass might be a little bit behind. And between those three things is something that's fucking massive. And if you put those pieces together individually and line them all up to the kick drum and they all hit your ear at the same moment, and guess what? It sounds pretty small. Why is that? Because it's not hitting your ears. It's not wide. It's not. It hasn't got that big, round sound. So, you know, beat detective and stuff like that, you have to be careful. I find, uh, actually, strangely enough, I find a lot of my mixing, I move things, nudge things around to get that, to feel that, um, you know, size come back. Sometimes guitars can be just too on the beat and you nudge them back a bit and then suddenly, you know, it starts to get some sort of feel together. People have been doing that a lot with vocals, you know, they nudge them back on the back of the beat. But you'd be surprised how much of mixing you find that I've got the first verse sounding good, but the second verse doesn't. And if you just nudge a couple of things around, you go, okay, now the mix is fine. You haven't changed any levels. You just change the placement of where the sounds are hitting the ear. So all that stuff is really important, and the same thing applies with tuning. Um, I'm a bit like a broken-down record talking about tuning, but if you think of it like this, in the 60s and 70s and even 80s, people would tune up against each other. You, and basically, the, 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 if you could imagine the, the A440 perfect pitch line, it was pretty thick because everyone was a little bit out with each other. So the guitar might be a little sharp, the, might, the bass might be a little flat, the keyboard might be in the middle. So this area of so-called in tune was wide. So when somebody went out to sing, whether it be Robert Plant or whoever, if they bend a little bit in their performance, it sounded fucking cool. It was called emotion because they were able to go above the note and beyond the note and still be in tune. So if you think of the opposite to nowadays, you put everyone in tune perfectly and you tune it up. The line of tune is so thin that when you go to sing, you go slightly sharp through your emotion and it sounds like crap because it's out of tune. It's, there's nowhere for you to go. So what you do, you end up tuning the vocal as well. Then everything is in the same point, which is the complete opposite of what an orchestra does. I mean, the reason that there's eight or however many violins is because between them all, you get this big sound and we're sort of working the opposite way. I think people nowadays are a bit smarter about it and they're sort of figuring this out. But for a while, you know, records were so um, overtuned that it was, uh, it, it was quite shocking. I, I think that's a great answer. Um, Tim, I think that this is a great place to to wrap this up. I just want to ask you one last question, which is, we kind of touched on this, but you know, just a good way to wrap it up is, if you have any advice for people that are now just starting their studio business or are starting to transition into making a little bit of money with one and who really kind of see this as, their path. Uh, is there anything that you would tell yourself from now or that you would tell them? I think I would tell them to be confident in themselves. I think a lot of 
my career, I worried that, you know, what I'm doing, oh, I, I, I'm not as good as this guy or I can't play guitar as well as this guy. But, you know, you have to really follow your heart. Um, you have to really go after great artists. Don't ever forget that we're driven. Uh, people are driven by great musicians who and great performances and great songs, as we've discussed many times on this uh, conversation. But that is what's going to make you stand out above everyone else, is if your showreel has great songs, they're going to stay in people's heads. It's more important than anything else. No one's going to be interested in your well-recorded well and mixed version of a very poor performance and poor song. And, uh, you know, main, the main thing is to be extremely determined, to not give up, and, 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 and use the social media and have a plan as much as you can. I mean... <laughs> It's, it's so important these days not to just sit back and hope that it'll all happen. You have to get out there and meet as many people as you can because, unfortunately, our industry is um, reliant upon contacts and friends. You may be the greatest mixing engineer in the world sitting in somewhere in the middle of America, but unless you get out and meet the right people, no one will discover you. So, uh, you know, just really go for it. I, I really want to just echo everything you just said. I think that the being a human being that knows people and can interact with people. It's just as important as your skills because uh, without that, you're nowhere. Yeah. Really, nobody cares if you're just a technician. I feel like it's almost assumed. Like, if you're at the table, you know, if you're going to be considered for a gig, your skills are almost assumed. That's, I mean, obviously, you're not going to get the gig if you're not good at what you do or you shouldn't be getting the gig you're not good at what you do but i feel like your skills are assumed it's that other stuff yeah that makes the big difference it is i mean you you know leave your ego at the door you know remember remember that it, you're not the song you're not the word you're the highlighter pen you know thank you very very much tim palmer i appreciate you being so generous with your time and just it's been great talking to you thank you for coming on thank you so much for having me on this episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Golden Age Premier. High quality, vintage style products at an affordable price point. To find out more, go to goldenagepremier.com. This episode is also brought to you by Fuse Audio Labs. Uncompromising emulations of classic and rare studio processors in revolutionary plug-in form. For more info, go to fuseaudiolabs.de. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact. Visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today. <laughs>